Hello and welcome to the Performing Animal Rights series. My name is Ben Hunt. I am a PhD student at De Montfort University looking at performing arts in the animal rights movement. And we've got a great episode coming up. I'm talking to Dr. Alex Lockwood, who is a writer, an activist. He's written some fabulous books, The Pig in Thin Air and The Chernobyl Privileges. He works extensively with animal rights organizations such as the Vegan Society and Animal Rebellion, as well as the Animal Save Movement, which we'll be talking about extensively today. We talk about bearing witness with the Animal Save Movement and Slaughterhouse Vigils. We talk about narrative, we talk about performance, we talk about his experiences as an activist and as a writer. And I found real value in this conversation. I hope you do too. And if you do, please do share this, review it, download, subscribe, and also get in touch if you have any suggestions of people to talk to around performing arts and our rights or anything, any feedback is always welcome. All this I have to say is on with the episode. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for joining me um, to talk about your work. So first, I want to ask, what originally compelled you to write about animal rights? Can you remember that moment and that feeling? Yeah, I do, because I was, um, I, like, the, the, there's there's other stuff in the background that I won't go into because it's more boring, but, well, I've actually written about it in the book, so. Um, but it was, I wanted to do more, and it was bubbling up in that sort of age of, like, mid-30s. I wanted to do more stuff that I was interesting and aligned with, and I wasn't doing that so one of the things I did this is maybe a decade ago now was I sort of volunteered to work with a marine conservation charity uh, teaching creative writing classes to 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 primary school children like 10 and 11 the the charity would take them out on the DFDS ferries up here in Newcastle across to Amsterdam I got invited once on one of these trips I was like an overnight cruise to Amsterdam with like 50 10 year olds (laughs) I was like no no thank you although I sort of regret it now I wish I had because they take them out on the ferries to do whale watching and dolphin spotting you know and then bring them back so it's it's a way to try and get young people engaged with marine marine life and marine conservation but the charity was worried that they had a nice time and that was it so I sort of volunteered with them so that we would go into the class with them in a week or two after they, their trip and do like a reflective, creative practice with them. And it was really good. And actually, we brought some of those students down to the university where I work as well when we turned their stories and poems into like little magazines and stuff. And they, it, it, really, it, it really did seem as if it was embedding some of the reflection. Uh, and I thought, this is good. I want to do more of this. And I applied for a Winston Churchill fellowship to go uh, and do similar stuff or learn about similar stuff where it was being done really well on the West coast of America and Canada. And it was in that period where I was vegan. Uh, I'd always cared about particularly marine life, marine, con- marine conservation, but I really didn't know much about activism or rights actually. Uh, and most of my, previous work had been around climate change and climate justice and media representation and anyway so I I got this um I got this Winston Churchill fellowship I was like they're never going to pay me they're never going to give me eight grand to go to America for two months and watch whales and dolphins (laughs) and yet they did so but in that period of time it was the same period of time as I was becoming more and more aware of 
animal activism. I, it was at the time where sort of the imagery and messages and groups were really becoming quite prominent through these what were at the time new social media like Facebook and, and Twitter and whatever you know back in like 2010 2011 2012 it's quite new for us still and that was opening my eyes to stuff and it, it, in a way the, the moment happened when I was flying over to Vancouver to work with the because part of part of this fellowship was that it's all self-directed so I was coming over to America to work with lots and lots of different marine conservation groups educational groups to blend the two together to work out what's the best way to do pro environmental education basically particularly around the marine environment so i had arranged for a essentially a writing residency with vancouver aquarium uh, so i was flying over and literally as i was on the plane flying over vancouver aquarium was attacked by a whole bunch of activists who were, who were protesting about their breeding plans. They have captive whales and captive dolphins and were breeding them, like particularly belugas. And so when I landed, they didn't want any unknown people coming into their space. Do you know what I mean? Like, who, who was I? So it, got, it sort of got cancelled. You know, they cancelled it. And in that, in that time, I was becoming more aware of rights and activist, activism and justice, animal justice. And was recognised when, oh, maybe I don't want to work with them either if, they're, they, if they have captive animals. Well, do I want to be working with people like this? So this was like seven years ago, and I was a complete novice. You know, I was a complete, I didn't, you know, I cared about animals, was vegan, but like many people, like did not know, didn't think about what zoos were, didn't think about what agriculture was. And so it was in that moment, but it was, it was also, it was a personal moment that was quite, that, you know, stuff goes on in your personal life, fine. But I was, I arrived in Vancouver, I was jet lagged, I was on this fellowship where it was meant to be important and the, and the, and the thing I landed for, they just cancelled on me. So I wasn't sleeping, jet lagged, felt very unimportant. And I was like, I was, I was really quite miserable, you know. And I, I remember thinking to myself, no one else is going to make this good for you. You've got to do it for yourself. And, it's, and, it was, and it was a case of not only do you have to do it for yourself, but what's valuable? What's, what's, what's of value to you and what's of valuable to the world and the animals and, and, and the people you want to work with? And it was in that moment, luckily, with this money behind me from the fellowship, I just went, right, I need to, I need to work out what I'm doing. And it just so happened that I, the, the weekend following was the, animal, the big animal rights conference in America, the Farm Animal Rights Movement Conference. So I just booked a ticket out of Vancouver to fly down to L.A., uh, to go and to go and do this work and in the meantime I had some time in Vancouver so what I did was all was arranged to go to the first piece of activism I'd ever gone to which was a, a, a vigil outside a chicken slaughterhouse run by uh, the save movement in Vancouver and I, I've written about that in my book uh, the pig book and went there and nearly bottled out of it because I was scared and then the one person who was there Mary Chris Staples welcomed me big smile on her face took me around the chicken slaughterhouse and you just saw and I saw for the first time the 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 just sheer scale of the slaughter uh, and the industrial nature of the slaughter and I was then I was like oh and it dropped really they went oh this this is sort of what I'm here for not sort of just not only the welfare of marine conservation animals but oh these animals too and it was, and it was that moment really, that 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 moment that sparked it all, and then from there galvanised uh, a sort of snowball of 
events and meetings and actions and activities that led to thinking about writing. You know, I was already an academic and I was already a writer, but that was that was sort of like the moment when okay, yeah, this is this is what I can do. This is what I'm here for. Yeah, that's I, I love that story. It's kind of it's kind of spiritual, isn't it? This kind of you're up in the air and you're going to this place for a re- one reason, and then that changes and oh, I, I love it. It turns into like you just do a massive, not a massive you, Ben, because obviously you're you're already vegan and you already think about animals, but this kind of left turn to somewhere else. It's fascinating. I love it. Was yeah. it a no-brainer with the writing thing? Was it like, because obviously, I think for myself at the beginning, I, I was a secondary school teacher at the time. So I was very much teacher by day, activist by weekend and by night. And some obviously as a teacher, I would be like, I'm a vegan and please be vegan, everyone. But I couldn't obviously be, in, I couldn't show them graphic footage of sort of house footage when I'm teaching George Orwell Animal Farm or yeah. um was it was that a no-brainer just saying I'm a writer already, I'm gonna write about it? Or was there any push and pull about how to be the most effective in what you were doing? Yeah, there is some push and pull because I've I mean, I am a writer, but I've I've always I've always doubted the um in a way the value or impact of writing, um, particularly sort of fiction, you know, like you know, at this time in our our the human juncture of our civilization just sitting down and writing novels really do anything does it make any change and i've just and i'm and i'm out of reading an article actually at the moment that is argue that is arguing yes it does but maybe not the way we think about it and actually other people are saying no you know like this whole idea it's epitomized by maybe um like george Eliot. you know like the novel is there as a way to mobilize emotions in society to make people change and there are evidence, there's evidence of that, you know, like Black Beauty as a book, Anna Sewell's Black Beauty, led to changes in the law. Um, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring um, in 1962 led to um, the John F. Kennedy Commission on Environmental, uh, on the Environment, which led to the establishment of the Environmental Protection Agency. So there are instances where writing really mobilises on a, on a grand scale. And obviously we all know in our own lives that it can mobilise individually as well. And even if it doesn't change change the world, you know, I mean, as in like a mass transformation of the entire planet, it can change a little bit of the world, changes a little bit of you, pushes you in one direction, etc. But I've always, I've always struggled, you know, I've always struggled with the belief of that. I've always doubt, you know, I've always had questions of doubts of the belief of that. So it wasn't a complete no brainer, no. Um, and I think the thing that, but what I did, but but what does and maybe this is where it works with your work, you know, work within the creative industries, work on the side of creativity and activist practice. It's like sometimes you just get excited about stuff and you get passionate about stuff. And actually what I got really excited about was actually at that conference, at the Farm Animal Rights Conference, meeting Martin Rowe, the publisher, Lantern Books, and he had a stall there. And there were books that he'd written in a particular series of his called the Biography Series. And actually I was talking to him just last week about um about it and like this this little series of books makes perfect sense to him and make perfect sense to me like this different way of autobiographical writing between humans and animals that's both practice and theory and you know it makes perfect sense to us it's like our favorite kind of writing the favorite kind of book but not for everyone but when so then when i met him saw the books thought oh that's what i want to write and did a proposal for him and a little bit of sample writing 
And he was like, yeah, brilliant. Go for it. And so that, and so the permission to write from a publisher, as well as the excitement of writing a particular thing, finding the form, as well as in, in a way, what was quite, it wasn't overwhelming for me at all, but it was profound. You know, these, these moments of realization of what's going on in the world and the role that you could play. And in the end, it was like, maybe I've, I've certainly felt that the, the pig book that I wrote and so the book itself and the book as a calling card to go and do other things like gives talks has impacted people and whether it's like changed the world you know it's it hasn't changed the world you know you know on that big scale but it's impacted people you know people have people have been influenced by it they've changed they've you know so in that i feel that it has been worthwhile yeah that's fascinating that you feel driven to do it as a personal thing it's interesting to you if it's if it's true to us as people who are trying to get a message across i mean what is the harm in that and your writing has moved people it's moved me it's moved me into this phd and my own research so it, it it fragments isn't it it goes it reaches into different areas and yeah that's that's really exciting so it'll be good to just touch upon the animal save movement and the slaughterhouse vigils and how that moved you and what that means to you now and what it means to you then you might have mentioned it before what but what did draw you to that vigil did you just see it online or had you heard about it to other sources I think I had, I can't remember which way around it was. I'm, I'm pretty sure, yeah, I'm pretty sure that I knew, yeah, I did, I did. I knew about it in advance. I'd been, I'd come across the SAVE movement via Facebook. Um, I can't remember how, but I certainly was aware of it and it was certainly a draw. Uh, so I was looking out for it to do in America. I, I, I wasn't uh, in Canada. I wasn't, co- I wasn't, I don't think I was aware of the chicken save movement in v- Vancouver. I, I, I had been planning and was already planning to go to Toronto at the end of my trip. Um, Cause I knew about the Toronto pig save, which is where the save movement started. So, and then later on found out that there were groups in Vancouver that I could get involved with. So it, I was going to do that. Yeah, and it just so happened that with the thing with the zoo, with the aquarium falling through, that I then had time to do that. But I was originally drawn to uh, the SAVE movement by finding out about it through social media. And it just seemed to me a... It it just resonated with me at the right time, uh, in the right way, more than any other activism. And I think one of the ways that it did resonate was almost in like the negative way to other activism. So... Um, we've both been involved in activism up in Newcastle and the Northeast. And I had been, I had been looking to get involved with activism in the Northeast, but one wasn't, it wasn't, it just wasn't particularly appealing. You know, I was, you know, um, and then afterwards, after I came back after the trip and then did get involved, it still wasn't very appealing, you know, uh, which is when then we set up our own save group in the in in newcastle and, and the northeast after it had started in the uk in manchester in um june 2014 no um february 2015 maybe i can't remember either way the thing that drew me to it and the thing that i did experience with it was that the embodied encounter the thing that you don't get with farmed animals and you don't get but more more precisely is like what you're what you're embodying what you're encountering is the moment before their death. So you have you have an embodied encounter with a being who is about to be killed. 
and that in itself impacted me and in a very in very profound ways yeah it can feel sometimes especially street activism to feel quite abstract and kind of you're talking we're talking about something say with the cubes of truth or just outreach stores in general or at, at protests we're shouting and we're talking to people but there's this kind of gap where we talk about the animal but the animal isn't here and there's just not this kind of um viscerality and yeah there is that my 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 problem with much of the street activism is more though i just think it's ineffective you know i i I just think it like blattering blood outside a shop selling fur and shouting shame on you at customers is just not the way to not the way to win people over to your side you know Um, and what we're not and actually what what like yes all vegans should be activists. We need more people to be activists. But actually, the most important thing, the most like, what's our strategic goal? And our strategic goal is to end end animal exploitation. And but the vast majority of people are not going to be activists. Um, and so, what you need to do is is change systems. And if you want to change systems, you need to win as many people as possible over to the potential of a different system. And you don't do that by, um, well, you don't only do that. You search. I don't know. It's complicated. I'm not an ex. I'm not. The, I'm not like the the font of all knowledge and wisdom on the the best forms of activism. It just felt to me not only ineffective, but I also I was very uncomfortable with that kind of activism. I I don't think I didn't think shame was a great motivator for getting people to change. And I'm actually also not very good at going up to people in the street in terms of that kind of confrontation. I'm just not good at it. Um, I can get up in front of 2000 people in a hall and do a speech. Do you know what I mean? But um, handing someone a leaflet on the street is just, I don't find it comfortable. So I needed to find my forms of activism. And I write about that in the book, you know, where, where how do you find what's good for you while um, not to the detriment of the work that needs to be done, but there's many of us. So there's no point forcing yourself into something that's going to deaden you or demotivate you or burn you out. So if if my activism is more of the sort of intellectual activism, writing reports, writing books, working with policymakers, as well as also some of the embodied activism, which is going to vigils, because actually I, I think I think slaughterhouse vigils are mostly for activists for the profound encounter for the long-term motivation uh, rather than for changing the minds of the public and one of the what, what the one of the things that one of the contrasts actually that makes that point really well is was during animal rebellion in october 2019 in the it was a two-week it was a two-week um long set of different actions and activities and the first one the big occupation of smithfield meat market in a peaceful way legally no arrests painting the vision of a plant-based future was all targeted towards the the general public and it was targeted in a way that would wrong foot the right-wing media have us written about to be on board in solidarity with workers and the public and then we moved on and then later but but actually it really pissed off a lot of more die-hard abolitionist activists because they were like how can you shake the hands of murderers? Your sellouts to the vegan cause. Do you know what I mean? Like, I got so much. Sh- I, may, I, I can't remember if you remember, but I got so much shit at the time. I ended up in hospital with a stress-related thing overnight. Do you know what I mean? And that was from people who were meant to be on the same side. Do you know the vegans, the activists. I would have rather been beaten up by the police than given all the shit by fellow activists. Do you know what I mean? It was just like so stressful. 
But anyway, we did it and it was the right thing to do and it was hugely impactful and it shifted public opinion and it was our framing action for everything that followed. So then later on, 10 days later, when we shut down a slaughterhouse in Farnborough and blockaded that slaughterhouse, then we could, one, we could frame everything that we did in the light of that bigger action. But two, that slaughterhouse shutdown got no media and it wasn't for the media and it wasn't for the public. It was to galvanise the constituent base of activists who wanted to know they were doing something directly for animals. So that's a really good example of different strategies used by the same group for reaching different strategic goals on the way to our overall ambition of ending animal exploitation i remember i remember that point being rippling around outside the slaughterhouse on the action of this kind of it did after a while it's feel like we are we are here for us this is our this is our motivation um because there's some lock-ons and there was this kind of should we or shouldn't we let these animals go through and then i think they decided yes because otherwise it'd be suffering in the in the vans in the lorries and i think and, and you're right about it appeased it appeased the abolitionists a bit more i think that action and kind of made it more of a it felt like a coalition of the hardcore activists and then the kind of ones that are trying to be a bit more loving and a bit more outward outward looking and i really find that framing from smithfield market as the title piece and then inform those actions yeah i think that's really interesting it's a fascinating kind of it, a movement narrative in a way with all these different strands if we can go yeah. back to the embodied encounter and what that means to you and what bearing witness means to you, what, what are the, I mean, intellectually maybe, but also just emotionally, what does that mean to you? And do you think that translates to as a collective or is it a very personal thing or a bit of both? Well, I yeah, it's an interesting question, whether it's like personal or collective. I think the moment of the encounter is often very, very personal. It's between an individual human and an individual animal, often eye to eye, body to body, divided often by like the metal of a truck or sometimes not. And it can be incredibly transformative because if we're on the intellectual level for the moment, like the the most useful, some of the most useful, like a lot of the best academic work around this kind of subject is care, you know, care ethics, and asking that question of like of the other what are you going through and basing your responses on that I actually got really into like reading Emmanuel Levinas around questions of the other and responsibilities to the other um, which I found really useful although Levinas did no work at all on animal ethics and barely even registered animals in his work apart from the two famous incidents of Bobby the dog in um, the Nazi concentration camp and the the question of whether a snake has a face. So, you know, passing comments, really, in a way. But Levinas's conceptualization of the responsibility to the other, when you read it and you come from a point of view of critical animal studies or an animal activist, you think it fits, it almost, it fits our responsibility in relations to non-human others better than it does as a philosophy fit into human others, in a way. And what, it, and what it means is, and, and it talks about the responsibility to the other is almost like there before we know who the other is. It has to be, otherwise it's not ethical. Because if we base our response to the other on who the other is when they call, well, that's like fascism. It's like, 
you know that's like no we're, that's su- that's supremacism like you're not another i'm going to respond to but you are so ethics ethics and ethical responsibility and ethical responses already predetermined that you must respond whoever the other is so if the other is a non-human other then you're already you're already ethically responsible to 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 act and to respond and i read that long after I had I was attending vigils and bearing witness, but for me it perfectly summarizes that because when you're when you're face to face with someone who is about to die, the ethical call to you is to not let them die, and that's regardless of their, whether they're a pig or a cow or a human, you know. And what you are encountering at the moment of bearing witness to animals who are on their way into slaughter is a call. Is a is a call of responsibility to not let this person die, and that's what you, that's what I felt. That's what I felt, and I think that's what lots of activists feel. And it's not just an inter- and therefore you move out of the intellectual realm. It's a profoundly embodied, visceral, physical, biological encounter of of an ethical nature. So I think it's a personal thing in that sense. In the, it's the, the responsibility is on you and must be on you to respond to the call. So it's a very personal thing. Ethics are very personal. But obviously then that aggregates into a, a collective ethical responsibility, uh, which is why you've heard people like Anita Krantz, who founded the um, Pig the Save movement, talk about bearing witness as a duty, and which she draws on sort of the writings of Tolstoy, um, you know, to think about, you know, like moving closer when you, you know, to bear witness. And the 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 sort of ethical or moral characteristic of bearing witness is taking responsibility to see, to hear, to sense what is happening and to offer the testimony of what is happening for change, for change. And that's it. And whether it's and, and that's the, that's the ethical part of it. You know, it's like it's not just it, if you're just it's not bearing witness if you're just watching and moving on. Bearing witness is bearing witness is being open to being affected, and providing testimony is being open to moving the situation towards change. So I think that's what we do as activists. And so safe and so come back to the examples we were talking about. If we're talking about street activism, so like maybe like maybe Cuba truth somewhere in the middle, but say um, say like having a stall or doing outreach, you know, like that, you're not bearing witness there, but but what you but you're trying to bring about change, that's fine. But it, in a way, that's why the Cuba truths are so interesting because they do provide testimony for people to bear witness to, actually, in terms of the visuals. And then maybe some people do bear witness to that, actually, and actually think about it in an ethical in an ethical way to actually respond to what they're witnessing. So that's why bearing witness, particularly firsthand to the actual bodies of the animals as they're on the way into slaughter, is so profound. I think because it is, it's just it, it's a physical, biological, visceral encounter with life. And, and the value of life. And I didn't get that same experience from the other forms of activism that I took part in, tried, tried out. And, and, not, and that's not to say they're not useful or valuable or can be impactful. It's just at, at the heart of it, I think the, it's a very good question. Is bearing witness a duty? Yeah. Um, and probably 
the answer would be ethically yes. Yeah. It's interesting to think about this care ethics of we see the non-human animal in the slaughterhouse, in the in the livestock truck going into the slaughterhouse and that the compelling feeling to not want them to die and to try and stop that. But obviously when we're not stopping that, are we? There's this kind of duality there where we're compelled to stop it, but it's not there and then we take that forward. Does that sum anything up about the motivation for activists or is that something different because it's, it, it's moving from emotion it's going intellectual to the caring ethics to emotional to the feeling but then we're kind of subverting something aren't we we're not we're not breaking into the sort house and stopping the sort house because there's a, another layer to that like you mentioned at the beginning you think that vigils are more for activists is that it is it is it kind of like a it's a duty and by doing that duty we keep the fire burning to go on and make change elsewhere or yeah, uh, yeah, both. I think I think that is one of its in, in effects. But yeah, you're right. Strategically, I mean, this is even written there. Um, like the four the four purposes of the Save Movement was to duty of bearing witness, to provide relief, and then there were the last two. One of which is pro- you know share on social media to amplify. So absolutely, yeah, it is about taking forward as well. So it isn't only for the activists but i think what it is a profoundly impactful event for activists to do um or for anyone to do but yeah there is that taking forward and i think that's so it's not there maybe it's not so much a question of intellect and emotion it's actually just a question of strategy and tactics you know like you 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 have the you have the overall ambition the overall goal of ending animal exploitation so how do you get there what are the milestones on the way there and what are the strategies that are going to get you to those milestones or what are the tactics to feed into those strategies? So the strategy for a particular milestone is shifting public discourse so that animal exploitation, animal exploitation is more clearly visible and sensed. And so the tactics to get there is using footage from slaughterhouse, from, from vigils to move and mobilize more people who can't be there. So it's a, it's definitely a tactical act to do that in the strategy of shifting public opinion. Yeah. Uh, and I, and therefore that is valuable for me. And, this, and, and, and that's why I, and other activism is therefore valuable. And that's why I think we need to be, we need to look at and think, well, is it, is this tactic of throwing blood outside a shop that's selling fur is it is it an impactful is it achieving anything in the strategy is it a useful tactic and i think sometimes it is sometimes it isn't i think you're getting back to the sort of in a way the spiritual question it's like outside of tactics and strategy bearing witness to suffering life and being conscious of the reasons why that life is suffering is a very is a is a very important profound act to do in the it, finding ourselves in the situation and the systems that we find ourselves in you know because it's quite interesting think like like if you think about indigenous arguments for hunting subsistence hunting for example most indigenous certainly from the stuff that i've read most indigenous communities would say that they actually do they actually bear witness when they hunt you know and they they treat the animals with respect their their version of respect within their cosmology but they certainly bear witness when the animal dies. They certainly do, because it's a profound act of life suffering and life being life being given and taken and life essentially life being taken so that they can live. You know, it's a profoundly important part of life. And what is 
and by bearing witness to the exploitation of animals in our system where we don't need to be doing that and where there's an incredible un, unimaginable amount of suffering going on because of it that's where that's why in, in, in why it amplifies the profound impacts of bearing witness as a just a spiritual act which can then actually become quite a useful tactic as part of a strategy but there is certainly that that spiritual question there of like what kind of world do we want to live in what are the acts that we should be performing in this world so getting back to the question of act, act, act acting and performing and how can we do that how can we do that in ethical responsible ways yeah on my limited understanding and, and reading on native cultures and bearing witness there's this kind of the 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 nature is part of the same body it's part of the same being as such this a fabric of being which i suppose really taps into as, as an activist, when I've been born witness, I've, I've felt exactly what you've said, this kind of, this emotive connection, this, and intellectual connection for sure. It'll be really interesting to probe that. You talk about in Pig in Thin Air, the felt experience, but also moving the body as a significant part of bearing witness. What do you mean by that? And is it just your body or, or what bodies are we talking about? Yeah, it, I think it is important. I think... Uh, but it arises and it, it arises from the situation of the system that we have uh, in that the vast majority of the animals within our agricultural system globally have no freedom to move their bodies. And so if we as human beings stopped to think about what that would be like for the vast majority of human beings, uh, I don't think we could even comprehend it because much of our sense of humanity or our life the value of our life is in the freedom of our bodily movement freedom of our thought but in the freedom of our bodily movement which is why incarceration is so is such uh, is is the, is the is the punishment for you know acts against society and the the therefore the the bearing witness and the embodied encounter between human and non-human animal at that moment, particularly at that moment where the animal was about to take, be taken to slaughter to die, one of the threads of the ethical call there is the awareness that the, the animal has no freedom of its own movement. And therefore, arising out of that is a really important ethical call to foreground, to challenge, to problematize, to bring into awareness this question of bodily movement and bodily freedom so so one way that i did that inspired by someone i met on my on the fellowship like by by gene bauer who founded farm sanctuary he wrote an essay in the collection running eating thinking uh, which is also published by lantern books all about the relationship between running and animals and food etc but he wrote in there that he runs he runs because the animal can't he moves his body because the animal can't I move my body because the because the pig can't. And so I want to do something with my body that raises that awareness. And that really, that really spoke to me very powerfully about an activist practice that is also a performance practice of running and moving. I can I move my body because you can't. And I want to raise awareness of that. And like you'll 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 know this stuff more than I will about sort of the, the theorization of embodied movement through performance and acts 
and what that might do to the audience or what it might do to the performers. But I certainly got the personal sense that I was doing something important by running for raising awareness of the fact that the bodies, the bodies of the animals are trapped within the system and they can't even move to the point often where they can't even turn around. And I felt that that was a really important thing to prioritise and foreground in my personal practice as an activist, which then obviously I then also got to write about as well so yeah i think there's pro- there's a lot more to be theorized around that than i've ever done you know like the, you know phenomenology and embodied senses and the the affective impact that that can have on others but i do think it is really important because if you think of if, if you can imagine like i'm sure we can imagine what it's like to be trapped or held down or imprisoned or encased or incarcerated and i know obviously we both know you know other activists have, have put that into performance practice haven't they like by putting themselves in cages or gestation crates and you know peter have done stuff like that because it would it it would mo- and, and actually i think the the animal quality stuff the animal the, the, the virtual reality in augmented reality stuff where you're immersed in the experience is also about that it's also about putting you know connecting these bodies which is why again bearing witness is so powerful because you, it's the embodiment of it's the it's the bringing together of two bodies where something is shared and you're right like your your phrase the fabric of the fabric of being when you're when you're when you're having an embodied encounter with the other being and you are free and they are not you know something does pass between you you know and and you're connected through this fabric and that feels really fucking horrible you know because at some point you're, you're entering you know if you have the empathy the entangled empathy with a being who's trapped you you feel it and you want to do everything you can to bring it to an end. And so practicing that, foregrounding it through performance, for me, which was running, was just the obvious thing to do as part of learning about what's impactful and what can bring about change. I'm really fascinated with the endurance side of running, because I know you run, you run extensive lengths as well and have done. Is there, is there anything in that of the endurance of you as the activist and the endurance of... Um, the non-human enduring their fate and their life probably i don't think it would be the same if you did a hundred meter sprint no <laughs> so i think there probably is uh i don't think it's direct do you know what i mean i don't think it's a, an easy direct mapping of endurance in that way because i think whatever we do as activists in those is is nowhere on the continuum of endurance and suffering that the animals go through you know so it's not a, it's not a it's not a direct mapping but it may be within this it may be putting yourself on the same continuum uh even if you're at the other end of it whereas other actions don't put you into that same continuum i, I guess in the some actions put you into the same emotional or physical space as the animal, but it, but on that continuum where you are at the least lesser suffering end, and the animal is at the more suffering end. But then, at least you're in that. At least you've at least you've touched upon that same experience, even if it's the very very mild version of it. It's really it's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the first one of the I remember, and I'm sure you you probably do as well. One of the first things that I sort of got excited is the wrong word, but sort of maybe fired up or motivated by. Was the was the two six nine movement, 
um, and you know the, the branding, and they would actually get people to to publicly be branded, and so and that was powerful because it is it's exactly that concept, isn't it? Let's get ourselves on the same continuum of the as the animal, and have an experience in the same way that the animal does. So to be physically branded with a hot iron to experience that pain in the same way that if I said, right, I'm going to have my ears clipped or I'm going to be castrated without um, anesthetic, that would be placing me very much closer on that continuum, on that continuum of pain and suffering that the animal experiences. Uh, or, when anim- or when you see the performances where um, activists put themselves in cages, it's momentarily placing yourself. So in a way that continue, it's not a continuum. It's a, I guess it's a grid space, isn't it? With immediate, to long-term and um, mild to extreme. And in a way, the animals, many of the animals in the farming system are in that long-term extreme quadrant of suffering. And I I guess what we do, what we're talking about here in terms of performance is moving ourselves into that same quadrant space. And some performances are right down in the, the bottom corner of it's pretty immediate and it's pretty mild. Yeah. right the way through to extreme long-term um, suffering, getting as close to the experience of the animal. So I think bearing witness gets us close to the animal in terms of us coming up to having the profound experience of witnessing their experience. And it's but in, in performance terms, it's, it's down here in the, in the quite easy quadrant. It's, it's, it's not for a long time yeah. and it's not a huge amount of suffering in comparison. Um, so get to back to your question of running. Yeah, there, there's definitely an experience of running where the longer you go, the more of the experience it is on that quadrant moving up to that. And, and one example I can give of that actually is about is around running when um when after Manchester Pig Save started in 2016, about the June time, we organized an all-day event there. And one of the things that we were thinking about was how do we get more people down here? So we're not going to get the random person off the street who's never even thought about it. So where's the, in a way, where's the lower hanging fruit? Well, the low hanging fruit are the vegans who've never become activists or never been to activism. And so one of the, one of the concepts we have was, well, there's a massive vegan runners group in Manchester, Stockport, that area, many of whom have never been to the save vigils, whatever. So we went, well, like strategically, it's like, Let's bring people down here doing something they feel really comfortable doing, i.e. running, so that we can introduce them to something they're not comfortable doing, which is bearing witness. And so we got a lot, we got a whole bunch of vegan runners down that day, like maybe 20 or 30 different people. We also got other people just turning up, seeing that people were running and um, wanted to join in. And what we did, because, you know, Manchester, so that it, around the, the Tulip Slaughterhouse in Manchester, there's like about, it's almost exactly a half a mile loop along the river canal and then back round. And what we did was set up a relay so that at all times during that 14 hour all day vigil, someone was running, someone was encircling the slaughterhouse. And in total, we did about 440 miles together um, over the day. And I ran, I ran 32 miles that day. And someone and and someone else ran twenty nine. And uh, but the interesting thing was, again, talking about this experience of endurance, is that quite a lot of people ran further that day than they'd ever run before, and a large part of that was about endurance, was about enduring 
the pain and suffering that they were feeling in the connection to the animals. And a large part of that was about the space because on that run around, you go at one point, the fence goes very close to the slaughterhouse. And in, and what we think is inside at that point is the gas chamber because you can hear the pigs. So every time people were running, people were like, oh, I'm really tired. This is going to be my last lap. And then they would hear the pigs. And then they would think, I've got to keep going. They would think, I've got to keep going. And so in a way that it was very much about they wanted to endure more because they knew the animals were also enduring much more. So I think that was a large part of that running performance, yeah. Wow, that's really powerful. I never heard about that. That's very moving. Is the Just to touch upon what you already mentioned about the continuum and the grid, really interesting. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. From a narrative point of view, is there a danger of hopping on the continuum and damaging the animal rights message? I'm not talking about the running thing. I'm talking about the maybe the street performancey things or anything you can think of that puts yourself on the continuum of this animal suffering, maybe mildly, but it doesn't do the animal rights movement narrative any good? My gut response to that, without having thought about it in much detail, is my gut response is no, in terms of the 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 kind of action that you could do. Because actually, I think, um, and that's in, way, in some ways, that was why I was so inspired by the idea of the, the 269 branding, is because it replicated an actual experience what damages the movement and does therefore more harm uh, and, and prolongs the experience of animals rather than fights against it, I don't think is so much the action, it's the framing or the modes of operation around it. So, for example, a performance where someone is, say, wearing a blood-splattered skin suit to to express the experience of uh, an animal being skinned alive for fur i don't have a problem with that what i have a problem with is then the activist around shouting shame on you at the shoppers going in and out of the shop that's the thing that i don't think is beneficial that's the bit that i think is detrimental so if you go if you if you compare that for example you know the animal equality stuff that they were doing at one point with the with the dead bodies the dead animal bodies in yeah. town centres, in the Triangle. Incredibly peaceful, incredibly mournful. In, in, like, and there was obviously, there was debate around the time, was there, about exploiting the dead bodies of animals? You know, is this furthering or whatever? For me, it could have been exploitative. I don't think it was, I think it was utilising is a neutral word, but I don't think it was exploiting the animal bodies because in the end they're dead. You know what I mean? And it's like, we do need to respect the dead. But actually, I felt that the activism, the performance of that activism was incredibly respectful and powerful. So, but if they had been shoving those bodies in people's faces and saying, look at what you've done, look at what you've done, that would have been harmful. So for me, the, I, 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 I'm with, I'm, I'm in terms of like taking a quote from sort of like the literary field, you know, or even comedy, black comedy, like Salman Rushdie was like, literature can say anything. And I think performance can say anything. I think art can say anything, but it may not be able to say everything in every way. And I think that's the difference. I think performance, activism can do anything, but you have to then think about the way in which that is done or way in which it's said, which is going to um, be most beneficial. And there's nothing wrong, actually, with being antagonistic or provocative, 
you know, but sometimes it, it can work or it can't work. And I think we're issues of shaming people or provoking people without some sense of action to move into or exploiting animals for those for for shock value or whatever you know they're questionable so i'd say in essence i think you could do anything but it's how you do it that's important yeah i think there's definitely a there's definitely a message of like letting the art or letting the performance speak for itself and you're right i think as activist as me as an activist anecdotally my own experience i want to say everything at the same time like yeah. this is what's wrong with all these things, but it just doesn't work like that, does it? And you're right. You can't say everything all at once. And I think the gut reaction of trying to say everything all at once is shouting at people. And it, that just doesn't work. Just to come back to the save movement and to vigils, it'll be really interesting to pick your brains about who do you think the audience is for the vigils? How do you see the audiences in this? Because obviously you've got slaughterhouse workers as well and people passing by on buses what what is their importance if there is an importance in the vigil yeah no uh, yeah hugely um i think it'd be really interesting to sort of explore that through like theories or questions or stuff that's been written about street street performance actually you know so because actually if you just turn up and do street performance like who is the audience and what impact so i'm sure people have written about that um and it'd be really interesting for you i guess to look at this kind of stuff through that they are really important as you're talking about it, the image I've got in my head is of, say, like a, a dot in the middle of like a, a circular, almost like web diagram. You've got the dot in the middle and the dot in the middle is the vigil. And then you've got, you've got circles going outwards. And so you've got like the circle in the middle and then you've got the activists who are partaking. And, and then it's, it's not quite circles out, but it's, it's lines out. And some of those lines go really out far and some of those lines go really out close. And some of those lines are red and some of them are green. So the ones that go out close that are red are linking to people like the slaughterhouse workers. So the red identifies antagonistic or unreceptive, but they're very close to the action. And then you've got other people who might, and, and it's completely random, you've got other people who might be very close, but on a green line, but not very far, which is very close, but receptive. Um, and then you've got lines going out at different lengths. So people who are quite far away from it so who see it on social media but it's a green line so they're receptive or people who see it on social media but it's a red line because they're unreceptive and so that so that that's sort of the image i've got in my head of sort of like where the audience plays a role but where, where it then gets complicated is the example of um so the first i don't know if i write this in my book actually but the i think i do i can't remember but the first video i went to was in vancouver a chicken vigil just the one person there mary chris staples and she introduced me to the whole thing and whatever. But the story she told me was about the bus driver. So she, so she stands at this busy commuter intersection. That's where they do their vigil. Uh, and so you can't see the inside of the slaughterhouse because the inside of the slaughterhouse is one road back on an alley. And you can see everything from there, but you can't see it from the road. So what they're doing is like the, the thing that we do, you know, make a big sign saying, hey, there's a slaughterhouse here. Did you know? And then she's got all the signs, but it's a, it's a busy intersection. So when it goes red, people have to stop for a minute and look or not look. And it's really interesting to look red or green, red or green. Are you looking or are you, you receptive or unreceptive? But then there's a bus driver who sees her every day, every Friday when he does it. 
and he stops at the intersection because there's a bus stop just before. So he's generally on the red light or whatever. And if he's not, if he's on the red light, on a green light, he'll sometimes stop anyway and just wait for the red light. And he'll open the door and speak to her and be a pain in the arse. He'll go, oh, chicken for dinner tonight. My wife's making it. Can't wait to go home. And he did this ongoing for six months. And she unfailingly friendly person waving goodbye chatting to him about it so well maybe you'll think about it six months later he stops and opens the door and he's looking really fucking miserable and he just says we're not eating chicken anymore wow you know and so you don't you don't know who the audience is or what they're doing or how they're going to respond i mean i i also know many many stories of people who came to join the vigils because they saw it and were driving past you know particularly in america or canada so that the audience that, you know, the, the passers by that public audience has a huge role to play in it. But audience studies and reception studies is sort of like, oh, it's a, it's a really interesting, but complicated and well out of my range. But there's a really good, um, there's a really good journal. I can't remember what it's called. It was ed- edited by a guy called Martin Barker. And they do this stuff really well. You know, it's like really good empirical analysis of audiences and how they engage with text whether that be tv or theater or whatever and it would be really interesting to think about the audience of the vigil performance through that kind of lens yeah yeah that's fascinating it's interesting to think of one of those red strands going green like that bus driver yeah. Yeah. it's really uh that's a really yeah. nice visual um i might use that at some point i think because yeah. it is <laughs> just no but it did it just came to me there it's just like that kind of switch visualizing that kind of switch is really important yeah Fab. So the last question is, I know you've been, you were quite heavily involved with Animal Rebellion at the beginning with narrative and you, you've dabbled um, in the animal rights movement around narrative quite a bit. So what role do you think narrative has in the animal rights movement? Well, it's, I mean, there's two sort of places to start. One thinking that um, if you need a strategy to achieve your goals, like plan and a strategy, that narrative is strategic work. And that's because we construct our sense of the world and the way that the world operates and all of our relationships through language. And the majority of our language is structured in stories and narratives. So like what we tell ourselves, you know, how we communicate with others, you know, they're all, they're all or, or more, maybe, maybe not everything is structured that way, but most stuff is, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, like when you come home, your partner comes home and says, oh, how was your day? And they tell you a story about how the day was. And it may not be a, it may not be a literary thriller, but it's a narrative. And that's how you can, that's how you spend most of your time communicating, you know, in narrative, even to yourself. And those narratives become norms, which become normalizing, don't they? So we talk about, you know, you know, the 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 status quo or the common sense idea that most people ascribe to that animals are property or animals are okay to eat or whatever. They're just people don't think about them, but they're not they're norms that were once stories. So narrative, the narrative aspect of the strategic work in the animal movement is vastly underutilized, mostly misunderstood, um, not empirical, and underinvested. And so and so really and that ne- it needs to be um, much more a part of every animal organization's activism. It currently is like we all, you know, the campaigns are, are often stories, you know, it's stories about we went undercover and did this and found this, but it's not 
people aren't necessarily thinking about it strategically and they're not understanding it in terms of changing human behavior or no they are every the thing it's difficult isn't it everyone knows that you can tell a good story and change people's behavior and, and thinking but people aren't think but people don't have the fully developed skill sets of creating the most effective stories and the most effective narratives to change those to change those behaviors and even if we do that on individual you know even if we do that with with individuals um, how are we doing it on the the macro scale you know how are we changing the stories and the status quo and the common sense narratives and the norms at the social and cultural levels you know that's the work that needs to be done because if it's like um Danella Meadow the systems thinking paradigm basically you know like it's the the hierarchy is if you change things at the bottom with individuals fine but if you change things at the top in terms of the paradigm you change everything below it and like Kim Stallwood argues about this in terms of political terms rather than narrative but most animal activism is at this bottom at the bottom levels working on individuals or communities and you might get mass you might get mass amplification of messages through the media or social media but it's all directed to the individual individual change so you've got in just the uk you've got 60 million individuals down here and you're trying to change them all one by one in a way and it might it, it, you know veganuary is really effective because it changes a lot of people but it's it, it's changing people individually and uh, with the hope that it trickles up you know and, and it does and it is trickling up but actually if you go and change the paradigm up here then it, it and then it changes everything else below it so narrative work needs to be doing that work as well the narrative work at the at the paradigm change system transformation but narrative transformation common sense transformation um and it and it can work it does work you know we you know um and that's why a lot of the animal movement i think looked towards the past where major cultural transformations have happened through the civil rights movement or gandhi's um you know post colonial movement or um suffragettes for example or the change in um, laws and legislations around sort of gay rights and gay marriage and stuff. You know, these are big social transformations that have happened. And that's what the animal rights movement is looking at for inspiration. You know, how do we change the paradigm so that everything below it, laws, cultural norms, legislative practices, cultural practices, all change and then that filters down into individual lives. So, you know, so everyone has to do it rather than working from the bottom up. Thank you very much, Alex, and thank you, the listener, for listening to this episode of the Performing Animal Rights series. If you found value in this episode, please do share it and review it, subscribe, download, and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. And in the meantime, take care and goodbye.